Welcome. You're listening to the You're Crazy Professor, but it might just work amazing podcast. Seven. Who will do the cleaning? Here's a short and simple thought experiment. Cast your mind back to when you were last in your workplace. Did you see a cleaner? Do you have more than one cleaner who cleans your areas at work or is it just the same person every day? Do you know the name of the cleaner you see most often? Do you say hello to them? Do they say hello to you or do they wait until they're spoken to before they speak to you? How does your organisation and your workplace value and thank the cleaners for what they do? How do other staff speak of them and refer to the cleaners? Just taking some time to think about how cleaners are perceived and treated in organisations could be really interesting and illuminating. In the late 1990s, when I was a student, in my department at the university, staff recently had their photographs taken and placed on a notice board for visitors to see. Upon seeing the photographs the first time, I remarked to a colleague, "Ah, even Irene the cleaner is up there. Of course, as soon as I said it, I realised it was a stupid and crass thing to say. After all, why shouldn't Irene be up there? Besides, Irene was not so much up there with the rest of the staff, but actually down there at the bottom of the pyramid of photographs on a row all to herself. In fact, it looked more like a Christmas tree with the head of the institute at the top, with some professors underneath him, senior lecturers underneath those, lecturers, research staff, admin staff, and right at the bottom, almost like the sad, sorry stump of the Christmas tree, was the one cleaner. This example speaks the obvious all too clearly and poses some interesting questions. Why do we place cleaning staff at the lower end of organisational hierarchies? Why do we view such workers as appendices and blanket them with the term support staff? I suspect it's because it's inherent in human nature to never want to be at the bottom of the pile and if there are cleaners, domestics and other staff below us ordinary regular working stiffs, then why shouldn't we question the system? However, if we do not begin to address the question of who will do the cleaning soon, then there may be a large-scale problem awaiting us all. The historical etiology of this present situation is still present today, and it's very much related to class inequalities and gender inequalities. Cleaners have often been marginalised in workplaces, required to perform their work very early in the day or very late in the day, outside of the regular nine-to-five working day, before or after the majority of working staff are on premises. Such marginalisation was made easier because such work was traditionally done by poor and lower-class females. As Horsfield put it in 1997, marginalised tasks performed by marginalised people. Daytime cleaning in workplaces could result in greater noise, disturbance and an increased risk of potential accidents whilst nighttime cleaning also poses the added costs of additional heating, lighting and security. Keeping cleaners out of the way of other staff 
and thereby making them an invisible workforce, has naturally resulted in cleaners being viewed by regular working people as being markedly different from them. Working such short hours at extreme ends of the working day may perpetuate the contract cleaning industry to continue employing part-time and cheaper workers. However, if recruitment and retention problems continue in the cleaning industry, the sourcing of a new labour force different from the traditional one that's been accessed may become a reality, and this could involve a majority of more costly day workers and perhaps more costly males who may not be willing to work under the current conditions that cleaners do. A more sensible option must be to use the current workforce more effectively and in a way that is more attractive to them. In short, can we make cleaning a better profession that will retain more people for longer? Can organisational or occupational psychology help in this task? There's unfortunately little research looking at the well-being of manual cleaners. What there is usually concerns issues of musculoskeletal problems, respiratory problems resulting from chemicals or dust exposure, or ergonomic principles. This picture does not appear likely to improve while such occupations are often described as difficult to access. To be fair, however, it can be very difficult to access occupational populations such as cleaners because many cleaners don't speak English as a first language, they may be working multiple jobs and are therefore tired and very busy, and they might just not have the time and investment and capacity to take part in some research for some researcher that has very little to do with their immediate being. Given, of course, that most research would involve questionnaires, there's also possibly going to be a literacy and communication issue which would really impact upon any research population being targeted by researchers. So although they are a difficult-to-access population in some respects, cleaners are certainly not an impossible population to access. Research investigating any psychological effects of cleaning work are even harder to find, yet this is surprising as cleaning work appears to be an occupation that could be psychologically harmful, requiring hard work based around antisocial working hours with little task variety and for relatively poor pay and low social status rewards. As has been demonstrated in books and, and the small amount of research that exists, cleaning and the maintenance of impeccable hygiene is a central need in all layers of society. Maintaining hygiene standards will not be possible if there is nobody available or willing to do such work. And therein lies one of the first problems facing society. Having people available to do cleaning work is not the same as having people who are willing to do such work. And upon closer inspection, this large-scale problem is in fact several problems masquerading as one. It's to do with retention, it's to do with recruitment, and it's to do with skills. That manual cleaning is hard and tiring work is not in contention. Although the implementation of ergonomically tested equipment and standardised work practices can certainly make cleaning work easier than it used to be. There are many other demanding and tiring jobs, yet there does not appear to be recruitment or retention problems in other industries on par with those facing the cleaning industry. 
The application of some well-known models of human behaviour used widely in organisational psychology can perhaps illuminate why such problems exist for the cleaning industry and more importantly what can be done to remedy the situation. These models can explain how psychological distress or unhappiness arising from some jobs has the capacity to create harm, either physical, psychological or both. Important factors to remember are the demands that are placed upon workers, how much control and freedom they have to meet those demands and how much support they receive from bosses and colleagues. Firstly, let's look at the person-environmental fit model. This model focuses on the particular characteristics of individual workers, such as personality type, behavioural responses, or even their likes and dislikes and aspects of their work environment, and how the two can interact. More importantly, this attempts to ensure that the demands of work are appropriately matched with employees' vocational and health abilities. Not matching workers' abilities with the right job has been demonstrated to have detrimental effects to productivity and workplace contentment. The goal of this model is to create cohesive work organisations made of workers who feel that their abilities are understood and valued, but actually getting this to work in a practical setting can be a paradox for most modern management styles. How can job person fit be encouraged while also attempting to maximise worker variability and a mixing of their varied skills? Secondly, the reward effort imbalance model. This is to do with the work of Seagrist. Seagrist's model of effort reward imbalance, or ERI, relates to the perceived balance between effort spent by workers and the rewards they receive. Work environments which require high effort from the employees relative to a low level of reward, high cost versus low reward, are shown to increase the likelihood of worker ill health. It's also sensible to believe that such high effort and low reward jobs reduce the likelihood of recruitment and retention. The concepts of effort and reward can be hypothesized to work separately from each other and that psychological factors such as social support from colleagues and employment grade may reduce any negative effects of such work. Thirdly, the job demand, control and support model. Karasek's 1979 model of stress and subsequent updates in the 90s are still relevant to contemporary workplaces today. Working environments make demands of workers, and those workers need to meet those demands as best they can with the tools they have access to, and their own abilities. Psychosocial stress is usually low in workers who have a fair balance between the demands placed upon them and their abilities to meet those demands, and this usually results in optimum productivity and worker satisfaction. Should such demands outreach workers' abilities, stress and distress is usually one of the results with the amount and severity of distress experienced usually comparable with the size of the imbalance between what workers require to do and what they can actually do. Individual differences among people often moderates how well some workers do or do not cope with such distress and why not every worker is affected by distress in the same way. It must be remembered that workers are not always aware when they may be suffering the effects of such demand-related distress, and they may be soldiering on, unaware of a drop in their efficiency or their abilities. Importantly for the cleaning industry, it must be remembered that monotonous and repetitive work can also result in distress amongst those workers who are easily able to cope with such demands, 
and that as such, boredom and a consistent lack of challenge in a job can be just as stress-inducing as not being able to cope with too much pressure and too many things going on. It's important to also acknowledge that for workers, having enough control and freedom in deciding how to meet the demands placed upon them is integral to their coping abilities. Traditionally, high-demanding jobs which allow workers little choice in how to do their work are those which have had higher levels of distress and physical illness. However, a further distinction in this concerns how much support workers feel they have from colleagues, management and their peers. This concept acknowledges that the most psychologically stressful workplace scenarios usually involve high demands, limited worker control and little support from others. There will always be individuals in any occupation and organisation for whom particular demands can be too much. But on the whole, allowing workers greater levels of autonomy and freedom can help them to tolerate great demands placed upon them. Many studies focus on the relationship between poor psychosocial working conditions and health problems in various workforces. Ways to counter any negative effects of poor working environments can also be directed directly at the workforce. Increasing positive thinking and happiness among workers can have benefits in reducing health complaints and sickness absence. Employee-targeted interventions have a better chance of succeeding if the workforce is receptive to such interventions. Receptive workers tend to have what is known as a zestiness for work or what we currently see as an engagement for work. They tend to be young, relatively recent recruits, often college educated and they're often happy to be ambassadors who speak well of their job and employers. Some evidence suggests there's a link between company size and zest of the workforce, with larger companies being more likely to have employees who are ambassadors. It's estimated that 35% of the workforce in the UK admit to low levels of commitment to their job and employer, suggesting more than a third of companies fail to get the most out of their workforce. It's generally accepted that workers in the cleaning industry tend to be from a less educated and career-motivated section of society, and if staff who enter the cleaning industry don't fit the typical profile of workers who have a zest for work, could another way be devised to foster a zest for work in this occupational group? Improvement of the job and the status it has would seem to be the likeliest option. So in essence, can we improve the lot of cleaners? The cleaning industry has two distinct problems. First, how to improve recruitment in the industry, not just in terms of the numbers of people entering it, but also their skills and abilities. And secondly, how to retain the most skillful and robust of those workers. The answer to these two distinct issues both lie in making the jobs done by cleaners more interesting, more varied, with more autonomy and more dignity. Adherence to the principles of person environment fit, effort reward imbalance and demand control support can provide a tangible and perhaps long-lasting difference to recruitment and retention in the cleaning industry. It's not always possible or even practical to modify working environments and in organisations in order to make them psychosocially friendly for workers, but whenever it is feasible, it should seriously be considered. 
There are a number of factors that are understood to be important in worker satisfaction and ultimately retention, and these can include the following. A reasonable possibility of career progression and loyalty rewards. Good ergonomic design of spaces and equipment. Fair and sympathetic organisational structures. Usable and reliable technology and equipment. Consultation with workers from the management an ability to balance work demands with home demands, a reduction of perceived dangers in the workplace, comfortable working temperatures, noise and lighting levels, an ability to commute times, distance and costs that fit in with social and domestic demands, a variability of the job tasks, good control, choice and even artistry in the way the work is done. Positive and supportive work relationships with colleagues and managers. Clearly defined work roles that are free of conflicts and free of ambiguity. Now we're going to give you some evidence-based suggestions that could help cleaning work meet the principles of these organisational models. And this is based on work that I did with a colleague, Joanne Crawford, um, in 2002. What the cleaning industry needs to do is they need to change worker perceptions about the importance and value of what cleaners do. The job needs to be made more varied with more core skills. A greater range of skills beyond basic training needs to be available to employees. There needs to be more support from managers. We need to encourage peer support and colleague support and cohesion amongst cleaning staff. We need to give cleaning workers feelings of greater control so that they can cope with greater demands. And we need to match the demands carefully to individual skills where possible, what we call the person job fit. We should encourage and recruit workers with positive personalities who have a zest for life and work, people who bring joy to an organisation. And we need to encourage worker consultation for any change that may impact on, on the workers, both good and bad. Why does there seem to be a shortage of people, especially younger workers, entering into the manual cleaning trade? The Lake Market Assessment recognised a recruitment problem emerging within the cleaning industry as early as 1996. And evidence from the cleaning industry NTO also suggests that part-time positions are becoming harder to fill. It could be summarised by saying that fewer people are prepared to do cleaning work, especially in industrialised societies that are captivated by image and glamour, and in a celebrity-obsessed pro-teenage society, there is less cachet than ever before in cleaning for other people. But exactly how unpopular is cleaning with younger workers relative to other occupations? A small-scale survey of people aged 18 to 25 found a number of interesting findings. The analysis of this small-scale pilot research found that cleaning as an occupation is perceived negatively by the under 25 year age group. In comparison with other occupations, cleaning is perceived less favourably than shop work and sales assistant work, supermarket work and working in care homes or as a care assistant. However, cleaning work was perceived as being preferable to working as an undertaker or working as a bus driver. Such negative perceptions did not vary between males and females in the study, and there was no difference with age of respondents as well. The reasons given why cleaning work was perceived as undesirable were as follows. 
It was badly paid, 76%. Other people's attitudes to cleaning, 69%. The poor image of being a cleaner, 63%. Working with dirt and grime was a problem for 49%. It being perceived as too much hard work for 49%. Involving antisocial working hours was a problem for 38%. A lack of job security was a problem for 38%. The absence of job freedom was a problem for 34%. Working in different locations was inconvenient for 27%. Unattractive, uncomfortable uniforms was a problem for 20% of the sample. 18% thought that the other cleaners you would work with could be off-putting. And finally, and last but not least, the high potential of injury was a problem for 17% of the sample. In the small-scale survey that was just discussed, some sex differences were observed concerning those factors that make cleaning an undesirable job. Males generally indicated significantly more than females their concerns about being badly paid, wearing a uniform and the absence of job security. The difference in these three factors between the sexes may be reflective of general male attitudes in society towards gender-specific occupations. The payoff for males performing a traditionally held female role may have to be greater than for females in order to compensate for them doing such work. With regard to cleaning work at least, it could be argued that males may require improvements in these key areas before cleaning work could be considered as an occupational choice with as much likelihood as other jobs. In summary, cleaning work suffers from a negative image amongst the 18 to 25 year old age group and it's viewed especially poorly in comparison with other general occupations. Perceptions of poor pay, the all-round image of cleaning staff and the value of the work they do could be improved as a way of combating the negative image of cleaning as a profession. How would it be possible to recruit sizable numbers of young people into an industry such as cleaning that has such a low status when those potential recruits place a high value on high status jobs and prestige? The answer to this problem could lie somewhere in the realm of attitude change. Making cleaning a better profession will be of limited value if the public perceptions of the occupation do not change accordingly. Can cleaning be spun into a profession that possesses societal cachet and dignity? Changing the job titles of cleaning staff to more fanciful ones of environmental technician is a postmodern trick that the public are wise to, and such manoeuvres often meet with derision in a spin-saturated and savvy society. Changing attitudes involves more than merely changing names and labels. A more in-depth re-evaluation of cleaners and the work they do is required. In Japan, for instance, cleaning is seen as a very noble tradition with a long, proud legacy. This shows that our attitudes to jobs, cleaning for instance, are culturally dictated and they can be changed. Another important point that the cleaning industry must address is the sexual equality issue. As long as cleaning is seen by society to be women's work, there will be a recruitment and retention issue. For some male employees, it will always be a problem until there is a change. 
Such views are deeply entrenched and plainly inaccurate, as anyone who's worked in a cleaning job will testify. It's hard physical labour and it requires some strength and tenacity. This deeply entrenched view of what society thinks is women's work was highlighted by Rafkin in 1998. Many days I've questioned why there's no space for a vacuum cleaner between the toilet and the wall. Is it because men like women on their knees? Why should the profession stay marginalised and unseen? Doing so certainly does not help the professional cause for the industry. The best way to change public attitudes would be to make cleaning staff more visible and present in people's consciousness. Increasing the everyday awareness of cleaners and the importance of what they do would certainly be at the heart of any attempt at changing public perceptions. Perhaps the key to this lies within the zest for work and ambassadorship as discussed earlier. Satisfied and content cleaners who are multi-skilled and who can multitask would certainly be great ambassadors for any industry. Such personnel would be more highly visible, be more readily utilised and be more useful by virtue that they are responsible for more than, quote, just cleaning, but also maintenance and janitorship. According to Chris Cracknell of OCS, quote, there has always been some element of multi-skilling in the cleaning industry, but now we're trying to push it forward. Hmm. A contract army of such multi-skilled staff would surely be recognised as a benefit to any company rather than a necessary expense. In deliberately blurring the boundaries between cleaning staff and other tasks, multi-skilling holds a very important role for cleaning firms. A trivial point perhaps, but why have cleaning uniforms remained so unevolved when other professions routinely seem to develop their worker apparel? Of course, the answer again lies in marginalisation, but is it about time that the high visibility jacket or coat should be introduced to cleaning personnel, as it has been with almost every other profession that interacts with members of the public? Why stop at visi jackets? Cleaning personnel require personal protective equipment, which can serve the double purpose of protecting the worker, but also promoting his or her professionalism to members of the public. With approximately 800,000 people working in the cleaning industry in the UK, it would be a large-scale advertisement for the profession. The idea of high-visibility professional cleaning could certainly be systematically employed as a tool to aid in the slow erosion of the public's negative or at best neutral perception of cleaners. Daytime cleaning gives the cleaner a face and they are no longer invisible. An army of 800,000 or more highly visible full-time ambassadors would be a credit to the cleaning industry. The way cleaners are treated and often ignored in many organisations is an absolute travesty. And one thing we need to do is make cleaners and cleaning more visible and more important. If the bins don't get emptied in an office, if the toilets don't get cleaned routinely... It will only be a matter of days or a week before people start getting sick, before people start getting ill in the workplace and taking time off. The importance of cleaning is paramount, and each and every one of us owes it to cleaning staff to treat them like fellow colleagues and peers. You have been listening to the you're crazy, Professor, but it might just work. Amazing podcast. 